Let me ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. We look forward to receiving 21 more members into our church membership on the first Sunday evening of February at our Lord's table. And before then, we look forward to the baptism of four individuals on the last Sunday night of this month. Now I've turned you to the book of Revelation and I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is about a war. It's about a war between a dragon and a lion. It's a war between the devil and Christ. And it's being fought in what we might call the octagon on planet Earth. The war was announced and initiated in the Garden of Eden. The announcer was God the Father. He introduced the opponents, the devil, and his offspring in one corner, the woman and her offspring in the other corner. And God prophesied with certainty who would be the champion. His words were these, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and between your offspring, devil, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in effect, at that point, God said what is said in those octagons that some of us occasionally watch. Get it on. And get it on, they did. The war was engaged, and it continues to rage to this very moment, and we are the offspring of the woman who was Christ and those who follow him. And under the leadership of our great warrior Christ, we are at war with the devil and his followers. We are participants. We are soldiers. We are warriors. And that is what the book of Revelation is about. It is a war book about a battle between the lion Christ and his followers and the dragon devil and his followers. This book tells us what we must expect. In that sense, it's a war manual. This book tells us how we must fight. And it tells us that we shall surely triumph through our Savior. And doesn't it help us to fight knowing that we will certainly win? Now, the book is easily and naturally divided into seven parts. I'm just going to mention them. There are the seven churches, chapters 1 through 3, the seven seals, chapters 4 through 7, the seven trumpets, 8 through 11. And then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, we have the woman, a male child, and a dragon. And then in chapters 15 and 16, we have the seven bulls of wrath. And then in chapters 17 through 19, we have the destruction of the harlot or prostitute and the beasts. And finally, in chapters 20 through 22, we have the destruction of the dragon, who is the devil, and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, my purpose tonight, strangely though it may seem, is to frighten you. And after I've frightened you, I want to comfort you. 
I want to sober you, and then I want to give you hope. I want to make you cautious, and then I want to help you to be confident. Now, I want to frighten and sober and caution you by showing you four great enemies you have to face, and you have to fight against, and you must defeat until either you die or Christ returns, whichever comes first. Those four enemies are the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the land, otherwise known as the false prophet, the prostitute Babylon, and the dragon, who is the devil. Putting it differently, I'm going to suggest to you that the four enemies you and I must face together and fight and defeat are first the secular state or godless government in its persecution of Christians. Secondly, the pseudo or false church with its false teaching. And perhaps I could just sneak in there maybe the university because the university, unless it's Christian, is religious in its teaching because it teaches that there is no God and teaches a different system of ethics. So whether you want to think of it as the church or the university, they're so similar if the church is indeed false. The third enemy is the seductive world called Babylon. And these three enemies of our souls are energized continually by our ultimate enemy, who is the dragon or the devil. These are the fourfold opponents, not only of our Savior, but of all of us, his offspring. Well, then after I have uh, frightened you for a moment, sobered you and cautioned you about these four enemies, I want to comfort you and encourage you, fill you with hope and confidence. And that hope and confidence is rooted in the fact that these enemies are going to be destroyed. You will see their demise. And you and I will be victors over these enemies. We will triumph over all of them through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get to the business. Number one, first the bad news. I need to sober all of us and frighten us for a moment concerning these four enemies. I mentioned, first of all, the beast out of the sea, and that's why I turned you to Revelation chapter 13. We have both of the beasts spoken of in this 13th chapter, and I'm going to deal with this obviously in a very general way because I'm going to try to cover a ground from 13, 14, um, 18, 19, and 20, just looking at some of the strategic portions of these chapters. We see in verse 1 that there was a beast that came up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. The beast out of the sea, I am convinced, totally convinced, fully persuaded, and have a great deal of support in this view, represents godless government or the secular state, particularly in its opposition to Christianity. And this is a very real thing. If you listen to the prayers on Sunday mornings, you know that almost every Sunday morning we have to pray for peoples who live in a land where Christianity is forbidden. We just happen to live in a country that still enjoys many of the residual effects of Christianity, and so it's hard for us to see the world at large and governments and nations at large as the enemies of God's people. But in fact, they are. 
In verse 7 of this chapter, we read also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. You see a kind of global opposition to the people of God. And then when we come to the second beast in uh, verse 11, we see that that beast exists to serve the first beast, which was government. And I'm just going to say a word about the beast that comes up out of the land. Later, that beast is identified as the false prophet. If you'd like to make note of that, it's found in chapter 19 and verse 20. That is his other name. Now you understand, these are not real people. These are principles. These are principalities. That work through agencies, government, and I've already suggested that the beast out of the land or the false prophet, I believe, represents the influence of false religion and false philosophy. I called it the pseudo-church a moment ago. And this demonic source of power is continually trying to uphold government as the Savior. And isn't that true? Even in our country, which has been profoundly influenced by Christianity, so many people look to government as the Savior. And even we are prone sometimes to put our hopes in a given politician. And I know that we have to vote for the person that we think will have the best influence on our nation and do the least damage. But even we, I think, are prone sometimes to believe that maybe this will be the solution to our problems. But it isn't. And so the false prophet, through false philosophies and false teachings in the so-called church, ends up becoming an enemy of the church and ends up bringing persecution to her. Please notice verse 13, or uh, verse 15 and 16, excuse me. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, that would be the beast out of the sea, so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And we all know that, of course, is the mark of the beast. I don't have time to defend what I'm about to say, but I'm just going to ask you, please, please give serious consideration to this which I believe to be the case, the fact. The mark of the beast is not a literal number. It isn't a computer chip. The mark of the beast is any way that society has of trying to squeeze the church into its the mold of the world, requiring us to disobey our sovereign Lord, to live in ways that are contrary to the ethics of God's Word, and to pay some kind of a price for us. If you hyper-literalize that, you'll fail to see the mark of the beast wherever it exists, and exists all over the place. 
I would submit to you that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told that they had to bow down when the music was played or they'd be thrown into the fiery furnace, that in essence was the mark of the beast. And so we see that the second beast, the false prophet, is also involved in persecuting the people of God, even though the church and the university may be its platform. Then we have the third enemy. The third enemy is this prostitute or this harlot. We find her in <clears throat> referred to in chapter 17, actually at the end of chapter 16, but then in chapter 17, and then in chapter 18. Could I just show you a couple of verses about this, this harlot, this prostitute, this hooker? Notice verse 19 of chapter 16. The seventh angel has poured out his bowl, that's the last bowl, and keep in mind that it was the seals that gave birth to the trumpets, and that's the trumpets that end up giving birth to the bowls, and it was Christ who broke the seals. This is God's sovereign will. God is intervening, and He will at the end of history. And so He's going to deal with Babylon the harlot, whoever she is, whatever she is. And in verse 19 it says, the great city was split into three parts. In chapter 17 and verse 5 it says, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes. But when you come to verse 18 of chapter 17, 17, 18 it says, and the woman that you saw is the great city. So, is it a city or is it a harlot? It is both. It is a city that seeks to seduce. What is Babylon? Well, Babylon, spiritually speaking, is the world. Babylon is what John Bunyan would call Vanity Fair. Babylon is all of the pleasures and luxuries and comforts that the world can possibly afford and intoxicate us with. This is a serious enemy to the church. In fact, if you doubt that, just notice for a moment in chapter 18, verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. We must not live in Babylon. We must live on the outskirts of Babylon. And yet, in a sense, we live in Babylon. And the danger is that Babylon begins to live in us. And we must be so careful. If you want to see what Babylon is, then just go to any good mall and walk around and look at the stores. Look at the clothing and look at the gadgets. If you want to see what Babylon is, go to New York. Go to New York City and go to Wall Street. We know that she represents the seduction of the world by the response of those who were so devastated when she collapsed. We see her fall in chapter 18, but before I focus on that, I want to come back to that in just a moment. You will notice with me in the latter part of this chapter, or starting with verse 9, that the kings of the earth were bemoaning her loss. The merchants of the earth, in verse 11, were bemoaning her demise. In verse 17, the shipmasters and the 
seafaring men and sailors were loathing the loss of this beloved city. And then just to get a feel for it, notice in verse 21, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence, and we've found no more. And the sound of the harpists and the musicians and the flute players and the trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom. These are descriptions of a world infatuated with itself and its pleasures. And Babylon is an enemy of your soul, dear people. I started the sermon by saying to you that I wanted to frighten you and sober you by putting before your mind four enemies of your soul. Godless government. False religion. And the world. These are enemies of our soul. And we need to fear them. And I suspect that we don't think about them as often as we ought, that we walk through this world sort of blindly and oblivious to those things. Just like the people who were on that flight from Amsterdam to Detroit. They had no idea that sitting in one of those seats was a terrorist who had enough explosives to bring that plane down easily. How would you feel if you heard and had good reason to believe that there was a terrorist on that plane who had such explosives and intended to use them before the flight landed. Would you be nervous? Would you pray? Would you be concerned? Would you be conscious? Or would you just watch the, the movie and read the magazine? We live in a fearful place. And we need to be conscious of these enemies of our soul. Well, very quickly, the fourth enemy is the dragon we find that the dragon actually is the one who energizes these beasts and this harlot. Who is the dragon? Well, the dragon is the devil. Just let me show you very quickly. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. There's no doubt about who the dragon is in the book of Revelation. He's the devil. He is the spiritual agent behind the false prophet. He is the spiritual agent behind the beast out of the sea, godless government. He is the dynamic behind the world. And he uses these things. And he is a fearful enemy of our soul. And we find later in this 20th chapter that he, in fact, has the power and permission from God to unite the whole world in its opposition to Christianity. Dear people, the devil is crafty, intelligent, powerful, ubiquitous. That means he's able to be in more places than one place at the same time. Through his demons, he can be all over the world and has some kind of a communication system. He is subtle. He is experienced. And we ought to resist him with every spiritual fiber of our being. There are your enemies. When is the last time you thought about the two beasts and the harlot and the dragon? Now, quickly, I want to give you some comfort and some encouragement. I need it as well. Some hope, some confidence. 
Because I want to remind you immediately that there is a certain demise and destruction awaiting these four enemies. And there is a certain triumph and victory awaiting you and me. Quickly, let us notice again what happened to Babylon in chapter 18. We were told in 16 that the seventh bowl was poured out. In 17, we learn a little bit about who Babylon is. But in chapter 18, notice verse 2. And he, this angel, called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become the dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And on goes the description of her demise. What happened to Babylon? Babylon was burned. Verse 8 says, She shall be burned up with fire. There are several references to her burning and to the smoke that ascends up after her burning. The day is coming, dear people, when God Himself, who has warned us and warned us repeatedly about the deceitfulness of the world, will deal with the world. And the world will be no more. That is a precious and blessed thought. A day is coming when there will be no more seduction. Neither will there be a heart capable of being seduced. Notice chapter 18 and verse 21. I I read from it a moment ago, but I want you to see something different. I'm jumping into the middle of verse 21. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. That's what I want to emphasize. A day is coming when the world, the harlot, prostitute, seductive world will be no more. We will have no opposition from it. We will not have to fight against the world anymore. I hope you know what fighting against the world is about. If you had to struggle to put down on a piece of paper what it means for you to fight against the world, I'd be very concerned about you. This enemy is going to be destroyed. In fact, after it is destroyed, there's a breaking out of of worship in heaven in chapter 19. It said a great multitude in heaven cried out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And so we will rejoice someday to see that that the world in that sense no longer exists as a seductive harlot. Quickly, I want to direct your attention to the beast for just a moment. In chapter 19 later, we have a beautiful picture of our Savior dealing with the beast. Could I just read for you beginning with verse 11? And this is, this is the passage that first directed me, I guess attracted me. And I was going to confine my study to this section. And then I began to, to see the enemies sort of as a complex and thought it might be helpful for us to see all four of them. But notice, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. This is our Savior on a white horse. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Remember, this is a war book. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire. We learned about that in chapter 1 and verse 14. They're penetrating. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. God cannot be known exhaustively. Throughout the eons of endless eternity, we will never fully comprehend the glory of God, ever, because of the mysteries of His infinity. And then we read that He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This isn't the blood of the cross. This is the blood of war. You can see a parallel to it in Isaiah 63. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Not only was he riding, but so were the armies. And the question is, who makes up the armies of heaven? Is it the angels? Is it the redeemed? Is it both? I suspect that it is both. Only a few verses earlier, we saw the bride described as being clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. That's in verse 8. So why should we think it's strange that part of the army would be made up of the redeemed of the Lord? And then notice, please, in verse 18, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, you know, again, people literally think that Jesus literally is going to ride on a white horse and literally have the shank or handle of a sword stuck in his mouth sticking out straight. Please, please appreciate the nature of of this book, the nature of the genre. This is apocalyptic language. This is figurative language. I'm... uh, I'm bold to to suggest that other than the seven churches of Asia Minor, all of the other numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. Almost everything symbolic of real things. There's a real war going on. There is a real God. There is a real devil. There are real followers of each. I'm not undermining the reality, the spiritual realities behind these things, but these are symbols. And so we see our Savior riding on a white horse. That was the animal of warfare. With a sword out of his mouth. Why out of his mouth? You don't have to be a rocket science. You just think, maybe it has to do with the power of his word. Of course it does. And in just a moment, we see the power of that word. But we we have other descriptions of them. Let me just skip them and go to verse 17. And let's see what happens. What happens to the beast? Well, before anything happens to the beast, and this this is the certainty of your victory. What I'm about to read right now is for you, okay? This is for you. This is for me. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that were that fly directly overhead. Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against their army. And I was just stop right there and say, man, I wonder how long this battle's going to take. 
These are two huge armies. Wait a minute. The one on the horse has a what sticking in his mouth? A sword. And the next verse says, And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet. That's the beast that comes out of the land. That's all. And they were captured. Of course they were captured. There's no ongoing battle. By the way, this is the Battle of Armageddon. This is just another picture. The battle is pictured in several places. It's the same battle. It's the final battle. It's the final opposition of the world to God and His people. And when our Savior comes back, He will, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, destroy the Antichrist with the breath of His mouth. Sounds like a sword. That's all it takes. One word. And so, after we sing the opponent described our Savior, and the defeat prophesied. Um, you know, it's so certain that this angel can say, hey, birds, come on, come on, in just a minute, you're going to have an unbelievable supper. You're going to be kings and captains and rich people and poor people and slave people and free people and small people and great people. They're going to be all over the place. You can feast on them. You can feast on their carrion. Come. There's no question about what's going to happen. And in one moment, the battle is over. And we see the same thing with regard to the dragon. I only have time to show you this. You know, in chapter 20, we have the millennial reign, which we will not give a moment's thought to for now. But at the end of that reign, please notice verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Okay, there's, there's what Christianity is going to look like in terms of its prospects of conquering the world just at the very end. <clears throat> that verse alone would keep me from being a post-millennialist. But you see how symbolically the people of God are being described. It's a camp. It's a beloved city. But they're being surrounded. They're surrounded by a number that is like the sand of the sea. These Christians are going to be obliterated. Christianity is going to be stamped out. There's no way we can win this battle. And what does verse, what's the next verse say? Or the same verse says, it says, but. Yeah, I stopped in the middle of verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. I didn't take time to show you that, but back in chapter 19 and verse 20, that's where the beast and the second beast, otherwise called the false prophet, were cast into the lake of fire. Who's being cast in the lake of fire now? The dragon. That's number four. Okay? Dear people, these are our enemies. Godless government. I'm not talking about the United States of America, although I could, couldn't I? I mean, aren't we fearful for the future of this nation? Uh, because it is becoming more and more and more godless, and if God permits it to become more and more and more godless, don't be the least bit surprised that this nation will oppose Christianity. 
It's already opposing Christianity. It's the only entity that is not tolerated. But we're still enjoying the residual effects of a, of a profound Christian influence. But we cannot put our hope and trust in government. Only a godly government protects its people and the, and the religious freedoms of its people. We are becoming, at breakneck speed, an ungodly government. And so we should pray for revival. What we need is revival. That's what we need. Let's pray for every godly politician we know, and let's try to support godly politicians. But what we really need are more preachers, more prophets, more evangelism, more missions. And then we will be able to elect the kind of people who would reflect a biblical ethic. But I don't know that that's going to be in the will of God. We pray for that. We long for that. But what I'm trying to show you is these enemies are real, and they're all going down. They're all going down. And the devil and the false prophets are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And so, earlier I told you, take the devil seriously, and I won't take that back, but now I remind you that the devil is under the sovereign judgment of our Savior, and his doom is certain. I couldn't help but think in preparing this study again of that familiar hymn of Luther. How many times do we find pleasure in singing these words? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure for lo, one, or for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. The breath of his mouth, the rider on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth. And so, we have confidence that we are going to triumph through our Savior. I leave you with these uh, four thoughts very fast. Number one, always remember we are in a war. Not just the war of flesh and spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 4. We're in a war against the devil and against the world. And we ought to live like we're in a wartime mentality. Number two, fight like you really believe that you're going to win. Be willing to die because that too is winning. But fight like you know we're going to win. And it doesn't hurt if I die. An angel has already called to the birds of prey, Come, feast. God's people are victorious. Number three, keep your eyes on the one who is mounted upon a white horse. God gave us that symbolic picture for our comfort. You should think frequently of this beautiful description in Revelation 19 of our Savior and how he's going to wind up history. And think often specifically about the sword in his mouth and the power of his word. And I leave you, particularly you who are not Christians, with this final thought. I didn't have time to develop it, <clears throat> but had I taken a few moments in Revelation 19, I could have shown you the great supper that most of us are looking forward to. You know what it's called? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Beautiful. But you know, there are two suppers in this chapter. 
They're, and they're both great suppers. In one supper, we enjoy the meal. In the other supper, we are the meal. And as you listen to me tonight, unless you are a follower of the Lamb, a believer upon the Lord Jesus Christ, a real soldier, male or female, young or old, engaged in this battle, if you're not a part of that, you will be part of another supper. But you won't be eating. You will be eaten. Symbolically speaking, by the judgment of God. Because the birds have already been called to prepare for the feast. No one but an idiot would choose to be a part of that supper when you can be a part of the the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I urge you, if you're unconverted, flee from your sins, run to Jesus Christ, trust Him to be your payment, receive from Him His righteousness, and become a part of the bride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We know that we've only scratched the surface of these beautiful pictures in this book of Revelation. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the the certain triumph of our Savior and all of us who follow him. We do pray that you will give us grace to take seriously these enemies and to resist them and fight against them in the strength of knowing that their doom is certain. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.